At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We eagerly wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus, when He will make everything wrong, right. In a way, He's always reigned over all things, but on the other hand, His saving grace has received pushback and rejection from the evil of this world. Join us in our new series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives where we'll learn what the reign of Jesus truly means for us believers and how we, as the body of Christ, can continue spreading his name until he returns. All right, this morning you have a Bible or electronic device. I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. We're going to begin this morning in verse 20 of Mark chapter 3. Let me get there myself. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that in my life there are some times where I find myself, when I'm alone, kind of allowing my mind to wander. Does anyone have a wandering mind? Okay, like you begin to start thinking about things, and then sometimes you'll hear something, and then your mind just, like, fixates on something and then you go to the depths of it well for me this happened a few years ago I was I don't know where it came from but I it was one afternoon and I'm just thinking about the nursery rhyme Humpty Dumpty you guys remember Humpty Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall Humpty Dumpty had a great fall all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again well, for whatever reason I'm like I'm drilling down on my mind I'm like what's going on in this nursery rhyme First of all, what is Humpty Dumpty? And why is he sitting on a wall, right? And so I began thinking over in my mind, I'm like, well, and, and how is it that Humpty Dumpty is, we imagine him as an egg man, right? Where did that come from, right? Where in the nursery rhyme does it say that Humpty Dumpty is an egg man? It doesn't anywhere, right? Just as Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty. I mean, if you're an egg man, what are you doing hanging out on a wall? Right? You understand this, this, the, this severity of your situation. Like You don't have skin. You have a very thin, calcium-coated shell, and inside, there's an egg inside of you, right? Again, crazy. Well, I did some research, because I, I just couldn't get past it. And Humpty Dumpty has been around for over 150 years, closer to 220 years. There's been a nursery rhyme that has been used. And it wasn't until... Um, Lewis Carroll in the book Through the Looking Glass that Alice meets Humpty Dumpty on a wall and so it's, it's in that story that we get the Eggman figure did you know that? Hmm. still causes me to ponder right? I'm pondering why is Humpty Dumpty on a wall? have you ever thought about that? Eggmen shouldn't be on walls Eggmen should be walking around like with protection all around them so that something desperately terrible doesn't happen. And what we learn, this is this deep spiritual truth from Humpty Dumpty. You ready for this? I'm getting ready to drop some knowledge on you. Just as it was dangerous for Humpty to sit on a wall, it is much more dangerous for us to sit on the fence when it comes to how we respond to Jesus Christ. 
right? Humpty was in a place of great danger. He was messing with his whole life by hanging out on that wall. And what eventually happened? He fell. And when he fell, he fell into so many different pieces that no one could put him back together. Now, when it comes to how we view and how we receive or understand the person of Jesus Christ, it's impossible for us to sit on the fence. For when we sit on the fence, we're putting ourselves in great danger. You see, even in the world today, there's so many different ways in which people want to understand the person of Jesus. Right? There are some that want to accept Jesus as just a good moral teacher. There are some that want to reject him. There are some that want to accept him. But in the reality, when you sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus, you're in a dangerous situation. Because eventually, you're going to fall. Eventually, life is going to come crashing down. And if you go to eternity without Christ, it's, you're past the point of being saved. So while we have life right now, we need to come to understand who it is this, who is this Jesus, and we must determine what we're going to do with him. I love how C.S. Lewis in the book Mere Christianity, this is what he says. A man who has merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Right? So what he's getting at is, is he's trying to call out those that say, hey, I, I'll, I'll agree that Jesus was alive. I'll agree that Jesus was a great moral teacher, but that has no impact on my life. And what, what, um, what C.S. Lewis is getting ready to say is that if Jesus was who he says he was and taught the things that Jesus said, then Jesus would not be a great moral teacher. Either Jesus is a lunatic or he's a liar. Because you can't say the things that Jesus says. You either have to accept all that Jesus says or you have to reject all that Jesus says because Jesus makes some exclusive claims throughout his teaching. We're going to look at that, some of those today. So if, if he is who he says he is, then he must be our Lord. But if he's not, and if he's a liar or he's crazy, then we must reject him. So either he is Lord or he's a liar or a lunatic because he wouldn't be a good moral teacher. He would be speaking things about himself and speaking things about the world as they are. And he would be lying. Or he would be crazy. Or he's telling the truth. So today and in this series, as we continue this series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives, we're looking through three chapters in the book of the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at the ministry of Jesus as what is taking place as we know that in the fall when sin entered the world, there was a great divide between God in heaven and those here on earth. And there's no way, as we read through scripture, there's no way that here on earth we can gain heaven again. We can't gain access to God because of our sin. And God has promised over and over and over again that heaven would come down to heal the world. And so that's what we're seeing as Christ comes down in his earthly ministry. Heaven is coming to earth to heal the brokenness of earth. And this is what we see at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. 
It says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the gospel. You see, Jesus makes the bold claim that he is ushering in the kingdom of God in the hearts of people. So you're either left with a a response of either repenting and believing in Jesus or rejecting him. Especially as Jesus comes on the scene as we saw last week and we can look in the first uh, two chapters of the book of Mark. We see Jesus comes on the scene and he comes with authority and he begins teaching about the kingdom of God. He begins healing people and casting out demons and this is something that's so radically different from everyone's experience that the miraculous now comes into the mundane and people are beginning to question. Like, how is this possible? My rational mind cannot wrap itself around the fact that I know this man was a leper and now he's healed. This person was sick and now they're well. This person was blind and now they can see. That person had a demon inside of them and now the demon is gone. What is going on? Just as radical it would be for, some, for us to witness this in our day. In Jesus' day, there was a lot of buzz that was going around about the ministry of Jesus. And so the question of the day was, what do I do with Jesus? This person is so different. It does, what he's doing defies my past experience. Right? People, people don't raise from the dead. People that are lame don't walk. Like it goes beyond their natural experience. And so now the supernatural has come in. And what do you do with this person of Jesus? Well, what we're going to see today is that Jesus' reign calls us, calls for our ultimate allegiance. Jesus' reign calls for our ultimate allegiance. And we see this in uh, this passage today. We see two ways in which Jesus calls us to our our ultimate allegiance. First, he calls us to our ultimate allegiance by challenging our religious assumptions. Look at me in chapter three, beginning in verse 22. He says, then the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of the demons, he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in a parable, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is able to stand, or and is divided, then he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So what we see going on here is, as Jesus has been doing all of these things, the questions begin to arise of who is this Jesus? Where is his power coming from and what is he doing? And we're going to look at two groups today and see how they responded to what Jesus was doing. First, we look at the religious, right? These scribes are from Jerusalem. These scribes were the ones that are designed to look at religious laws, 
They were to be experts in Jewish religious law, and they both taught and applied the law. So what's going on is Jesus has been ministering in the north near the Sea of Galilee, which is way north of Jerusalem. And so word about what Jesus is doing up in the north has come down to Jerusalem, which was the religious hub of the day. And the religious leaders get together and they're like, we got to send the scribes up there. we got to send a delegation of scribes up there so that they can see what's going on and so that they can give the verdict of Jesus' ministry. And so the scribes go up and they see and they learn all that Jesus is doing and they come together and they have the verdict. They're going to place judgment on the, the ministry of Jesus. And what do they say? They say this ministry has a demonic origin. This ministry, the things that Jesus is doing, this is not from God, but this is from the powers of Satan, from Beelzebub. And so this man is casting out demons in the name not of God, but of the name of Satan himself. They deny that Jesus is casting out demons as a... As a a work of God, but instead it's a work of evil. You see, they did not understand what Jesus was doing. They could not see because their eyes were coated with a vision of religiosity. Everything they saw, they had their religious goggles on. And they weren't open to seeing the promises of God being fulfilled. They should have saw this and been amazed at what God was doing. But they were more concerned about having a religious, trying to be religious in their relationship to God, meaning that they were trying to be more right in the way that they lived. They didn't want a relationship with God through Christ. Instead, Christ was an enemy. And so they come and they level their judgments against Jesus because they just don't understand. And then we see Jesus responds. He challenges their false assumptions. And he gives us two images, two parabolic images. First, one of a kingdom and one of a household. He says, no, wait, wait a minute, guys. So you're saying that I'm from Satan, right? That I'm coming from the powers of darkness. Let's just get this clear. That's crazy talk. Right, Because if it's a kingdom, then you have a kingdom, the kingdom of Satan, fighting against the kingdom of Satan. How can that be? Right? If, if Satan is fighting against Satan, then what's the end of that? Well, Satan's gone because Satan defeats himself. So it's like, that can't be. That's, re that's ridiculous. Right? I'm, not, I'm not from Satan, but I'm from a different power. I'm from God above. I'm from heaven come to earth to save humanity from their sins. And then he even talks about a household. So even in the household. So not only will a kingdom be divided against itself fall, so will a household. And he says, that's not how I've come. And he goes on and gives us this imagery of a strong man. He says, so if you have a strong man that's there and he owns his house, you can't take what's his until you come in and bind the strong man. So literally what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm not from Satan. Instead, I'm come to overthrow the powers of the present strong man. I'm going to come in and I'm binding Satan and I'm going to take over what is his. And then Jesus goes on and he makes this, this statement, this claim. He says, not only am I going to overthrow Satan, not only am I going to put him in his place, 
but I'm going to do something even better because I'm going to forgive the sins of the children of man. Amen. Wow. Like, put your religious ears on just for a second. That's going to make you fighting mad, right? You're like, you don't have that power. And Jesus is going to go on. He's going to say, I'm going to forgive all of their sins. Whatever blaspheme they utter, whatever irreverence towards God that they'd ever uttered throughout their lives, I'm going to forgive all of their sin. And then they had to be like absolutely put in their place. Either they're like, whoa, or they're even more angry because who are you, oh man, to forgive sin? And Jesus says, I'm going to forgive sin. That's why I've come. I've come to give my life as a ransom so that a sinful man can be restored to a holy God. And then he goes on in verse 29 and he gives us this this verse that has been misunderstood. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I'll give you um, the truth of it. Verse 29 says, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying this, there is this sin that is in unforgivable. Right? And there are many different people that, that want to say, well, this is the unforgivable sin is like this, the unforgivable sin is like this. And quite clearly what Jesus is saying is the unforgivable sin is the person that never turns and accepts the truth of Christ. That, that's simply it. So an unbeliever. An unbeliever that goes to their death without belief in Christ has committed the unforgivable sin because it's too late. So any sin that you've done thus far in your life, any blasphemy that you, any irreverence that you've had towards God, you may have been a God hater, you may have been a a world lover, you may have so soiled your life with sin, You're like, I can't even, if I walk into a church on Sunday morning, the place is going to burn down because I'm so sinful. You know people like that? Well, guess what? Everyone has hope. Because Jesus makes the bold claim that all sins can be forgiven, but there's a timetable of God's grace, and the timetable of God's grace is while you have breath in your lungs. As soon as you breathe your last breath, your opportunity is done. That's why in this world today, we're not playing games. We are not, Jesus is not playing games. He's not saying, hey, why don't you just sit there on the fence, live your life, and then wait till your last breath and then call on me. I know people that live like that. You're not even guaranteed an opportunity to have a last breath that you have your mind when you take it. We don't have time to mess around. And as Jesus is bringing his kingdom to earth, right now, life is being transformed and changed by the power of who Jesus is. Man, have you ever been guilty of judging someone that you don't know? You know, like, this happens all the time. Let's say, like, you get a new neighbor, and they're living down the street, and then a neighbor that you do know comes over to you, and you're like, hey, do you, have you heard about the new neighbor? They don't mow their lawn the way that they're supposed to. You know, we all mow our lawns left to right. They mow it diagonally. Right? Or do you realize they don't bring their, on trash day, they leave their trash cans out till the night. 
right? So people are telling you all bad things about this couple so that when you finally, in your own mind, you begin to, to give your own impression of who they are. And so to you, these people become like terrible people that must be hillbillies from some other place that don't know how you're supposed to live in society. All because you've made prejudgments about them because of what you've heard. How many times have you done that in your life? And then how many times have you actually met the person and they turn out to be nothing like you thought? Happens, has that happened to you? Have people prejudged you without giving you a chance? It feels terrible, doesn't it? It feels terrible to live in that way. There's so many times we look at Jesus, people look at Jesus and they're like, I don't wanna follow that man because they've made prejudgments about him. Instead of allowing Jesus to speak for himself, people allow the world to speak about Jesus and they begin to believe what people say about Jesus instead of what Jesus says himself. Jesus here is claiming that now that the kingdom of God is here, there is the opportunity for the forgiveness of sins to take place. This is a massive claim. And there's only two ways, like you can take the words of Jesus here. Either Jesus' words here confront you or they comfort you. Right? They, they confront you in the, in the fact of saying, hey, however you think you're living your right life to, to earn favor with God, you may be following all the rules. You may have set up some standard that you have before God. You may come to church. You may teach a Bible study. You may do all, you may have a really, really moral life. But his words here confront us because it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter if you live a nice life. It doesn't matter, parents, if you raise kids up to be producing parts of society that go on and have great kids and generations. None of that matters. That's not how you are measured. We are not measured with our morality. We're measured in what we do with Jesus. Either we bow our knee to Jesus and say, not my will, but your will. Not my way, but your way. Not my righteousness, but your righteousness. So Jesus comes to confront. He confronts these religious leaders. And he's like, hey, the whole system that you've built is a farce. Everything that you've built your life upon is unworthy and will not accomplish what you hope it's going to accomplish. So Jesus' words are confrontational. He's confrontational to us. What, what is your hope of salvation? What, what is your hope that you're building your life upon so that when you stand before the God of the universe and have to give an account for your life, what are you gonna say? You can't say, well, I was a good person. Well, I did more good than bad. I went to church. I, I was a pastor. I preached a ton of, of, of great sermons and did all, none of that stuff matters. The only thing that matters is what we do with the person of Christ. Because Jesus' words not only are confrontational, Jesus' words are comforting. Because here he makes 
the claim that if you surrender your life to Jesus and genuinely confess him as the true Messiah and Lord, the outpouring of that is your sins are forgiven. Whatever you've done, whatever you're doing and whatever you're going to do will be forgiven. This is like even greater today than if I were to to come to you and say, hey, I just found the cure to cancer. Many of you are like, oh, I want that. I've got cancer, I want. You've got a bigger problem in your life than cancer. You've got a sin nature that everything about you is bent away from God. Everything about you, you see God as an enemy. You see him as not something that's lovely, someone that's desirable. You see him as someone that wants to be a cosmic killjoy in your life. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to think. Don't tell me how to live. And that's our response to God. And until the Holy Spirit enters in our lives and opens our eyes to see the beauty of Christ, Christ seems foolish. You've got this Jewish man who lived a pretty good, lived what to the world is a moral life, dying on a cross. That here, that to the world, that seems like a story of defeat. But in Jesus' way, that is the greatest story of all. It's because through his humble submission and through his shame, we now have life. We have hope. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that Jesus is the only way? Are you ready in your life to kneel before Jesus, trust in his death, trust in his resurrection, and confess him as Lord over your life? There are so many times, and I, I've been there too, as we think about this Jesus and we hear about him, and he's like, well, I, I want him to be savior. I want to be saved of my sins. Well, he does do that, but it's much more than that. Jesus is not just a get out of hell free card. Jesus is not just wanting to forgive you of your sins. He wants to be the Lord of your life. Now, some of you, and I'm gonna be real honest, some of you have come to the place where you, you've come to Jesus and you're like, Jesus, forgive me of my sins, but don't tell me how you want me to live. Right? That's not salvation. Salvation says, Jesus, I need you to forgive me of my sins, and now I give you control of my life. Amen. That's salvation. That's when forgiveness is experienced, and that's when we become children of God. So Jesus has come not only for our ultimate allegiance, he does so by challenging our religious assumptions, but also by reorienting our family loyalty. Now let's jump back to verse 20. We'll go to 20 and 21 and we'll jump down to 31. It says, Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So as we see, Jesus is 
bringing the kingdom to earth, doing the amazing thing that he's doing. Lots of people had questions. The religious leaders had questions about him, but also his family had questions about him. Right? So they, they hear what Jesus is doing. Jesus is, is come, he's come home. He's in his hometown again. The religious leaders come from, from Jerusalem and, and there's a big crowd around him and his family's like, they're coming too. And they made the assumption that Jesus was crazy. You know, James, the half-brother of Jesus, throughout Jesus' whole life, denied that Jesus was the Messiah. It wasn't until after Jesus resurrected from the dead that James, the half-brother of Jesus, became a follower of Jesus. And he goes on to be a leader in the church. He writes the book of James and tells us all about what the Christian life looks like. Even so much so in the beginning of James, he refers to Jesus as his Savior and Lord. Right, the guy that was his brother, they may have shared a room together. They may, he may have taken Jesus' clothes. I don't know what their childhood was like, but the challenge that he faced is he was so familiar with the person of Jesus that he didn't see him as the Messiah. He's like, he's my brother. And Jesus' family was blind while Jesus was alive. And so his family comes and it's so crowded in that, that they're like, hey, tell Jesus we're here. Like, get us in to where Jesus is because we're his brother, we're his family. And Jesus does something so amazing. Well, even the writer of Mark does something so amazing. And as we read through, see how Jesus does this, right? Those whom you think should be in the center where Jesus is always finds themselves on the outside. This is a reoccurring thing in the book of Mark, and we see it here showing up again. You would think that the way that the world works is that Jesus would make sure that if anyone was going to get to heaven, he would make sure that his family would get there first. Right? It's that, that old adage, you're on the plane, make sure you get your own oxygen mask first before you help those around you. Right? That, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the modus operandi that we operate out of in our, in our world today. Right? We want to make sure that our family stays close. To heck with the rest of the world. So you would think that that's what's going on. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you got this all wrong. You got this all wrong. Family is not based on proximity or based on DNA lineage. Family is based on, are you covered with the blood of Christ or not? That's what makes us family. It makes us, there's a deeper bond here. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He's looking around and these crowds are all there because they just want to know what Jesus is saying. They're hanging on every one of his words. And Jesus says simply, who are my mothers and my brothers? This was a, a question of identity, right? In that day, you were deeply identified by your family. Right, your family was who you were. Everyone knew who your father was. Everyone knew who your grandfather was. Everyone knew. And so this statement is a statement of this question. Jesus is reorienting the understanding of what family and family identity are all about. So he looks around and those that were close to him, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, sister, and mother you know in my own life like family and 
like blood family and adopted family, all, all like that has been such a confusing word in my life as I've had to be son, brother, half brother, you know, step brother, all of those things that's brought about so much confusion in my own life. But I'll tell you what, all of those things are important. Those relationships are important. But in all the brokenness of the world, our family identity, we need to make sure that we're identifying with the right family. Right As a child, I, I remember, I, though I was adopted, I had parents that loved me, took me to church, show, learned, helped me learn about Jesus. And I remember going to school in elementary school and I remember learning about my friends and, and this, this uh, friend had to live with his father for the weekend and then was going to his mother because they were divorced and this, this friend had a divorced family and this fa- family was going through other difficulties and there was a sense in which I started to take pride in my family because I had a mom, I had a dad and I had brothers and sisters and that's how I defined family. That's, that was my family, that was my life, that was everything that I'd ever hoped for because I had a family that chose me, that they wanted me, and they took me in, and that became my whole world. And most of you know my story, that a few years later, all of that was gone. And I was abandoned, my mom died, my dad abandoned me, and my brothers and sisters were all scattered around, and everything that I had placed my identity and my value in was gone, and all I had left was Jesus. And it wasn't until that was all taken away that in my own life I grabbed hold of Jesus like nothing else. And I said, Jesus, I don't understand any of this stuff, but I know you and I know you love me and I know you're not gonna let me go. And God just continued just to bless. Even after Sarah and I got married, you know, the church has become our family. You know, we lived so far away from other family when we lived in a small town in West Kentucky. Our church was our family. Right, our kids grew up having aunts and uncles that weren't their, their blood aunts and uncles. They still have family that they call uncle this and aunt this. And, we're, and we have no blood relation except for the fact that we're children of God living together. You see, the church is a gift. This is a place where when you come to know Christ, this is a place where you belong. This is a place where you're to be known. This is a place where you are to be accepted and encouraged. And I'll, I'll be honest, the church isn't always that way. You may be here and you may have been hurt by the church. Well, sometimes family gets it wrong. It doesn't mean that Jesus is not good. It just means that a hurting person hurt a hurt a person. Right? That happens. But here we have the opportunity for real reconciliation to take place. Because of the blood of Christ and because of the work of the Spirit, we can overcome or we can find reconciliation from church hurt. And so don't give up on the church. Some people say, I don't need the church. Yeah, you do. Otherwise, you're living on your own, away from the family of God. So how, are, how do you define family? Right, are you working hard to advance the kingdom of your last name? Is that like what's pushing you, what's driving you? Is that I need to make sure that I pass on a legacy, a legacy of my family? Or is your heart's desire passing on a legacy of faith? That's a deep question that I hope you've wrestled with 
And then if you haven't worked it out, that you begin working that out. Right? Your, your family that God has given you is, is, is a gift, but your, your family's not to be worshiped. Your family is to be let go. And your family is to be a, a part of God's greater plan for his kingdom and his, for his glory. Like one of the tests that I always have in, in my life is if one of my kids were to come to me and say, hey, dad, I feel like God's calling me to Zimbabwe. Okay. Okay, I would miss you. <laughs> but in, in, in all honesty, that's where we're putting her kids before the Lord. Praying, we're praying, Lord, use them however, so that when they come to us and they say, dad, I really feel like the Lord's calling us to do this. Oh, it's gonna hurt, but I'm like, okay. This is the way we've been setting you out for. This is the way we've been directing you. You know God's heart. You know his plan in your life. Now go and chase after it. Like there are some families that are like, no, you can't go. There are some times that families get in the way of the call of God and the will of God in people's lives because they hold on too tightly. The gift of family, earthly family, so that we can experience a little bit more about spiritual family, which is much greater and much better. See, Jesus here shows us that his reign calls for our ultimate allegiance. That's what he's after. He's after your whole heart. He's after your whole life. He wants all of you. And the beauty of it is, is that sometimes we don't want to give Jesus everything because we want to hold on to things that we can control, things that we can feel, things that are close. But what Jesus is saying is when you hold on, you're missing out on a greater blessing. Because he can take your limited definition of whatever it is that you're holding on to, and he says, if you let go of that, if you just trust me in this, then I'm going to open up your eyes to see a greater gift that I have for you. And it's more of himself. So to you today, who is Jesus to you? Have you come to Jesus and have you bowed your knee and have you asked for forgiveness and have you received forgiveness? If you haven't done that, then today that's your response. Is to, for, in your life, get off the wall, get off the fence and say, today, Jesus, I'm going all in. I'm gonna trust you with my life I'm gonna give you control of my life and I'm gonna begin this journey of following you. Or maybe you're here today and the call that's coming to your life right now is to continue to follow Jesus. Right? Right? Maybe you, you've come to know Jesus, you've come into a relationship, you're part of the, the family of God, but you haven't been living that out. Right? You haven't been following Jesus. You haven't been devouring his word and, and spending time with him and, and building a deeper relationship with him. Instead, he's kind of something that you do on the sideline. Maybe today the call that's coming over your life is just to continue to follow him. Take more steps. Take a step today. Take a step today. Or maybe your call today is to actually trust Jesus. Right? The future's scary. There are lots of scary things in this world. As a parent, I know there, it's, it, it's, it's easy for us to worry about our kids' futures. Right? It's, worry, it's easy to worry about our financial futures. It's easy to worry about our relational futures. It's so easy to step into fearing the unknown of the future because we don't know the future. 
but Jesus does. And one of the greatest things that we can do as children of God is to trust God, trust Jesus, take Jesus at his word. So maybe that's your response today with whatever has been holding your heart back or maybe you've been afraid of something. Just say, Jesus, I trust you. Trust him again and continue to follow him because he's worthy of all of our praise. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words of truth today. And Father, we do realize how easy it is for us to change our perceptions of who you are. Sometimes we confess that we try to make you who we want you to be instead of allowing you to be who you are. And Father, when we do that, allow your sweet voice of conviction to come and allow us to once again return to you in our hearts and in our minds so that we can see you for who you really are. Father, today, if there's someone here that's sitting on the fence, Father, I pray today that they would feel the desperation and that you and your spirit would move them to decide to trust and follow you. Father, the believers that are here, that are discouraged, Father, I pray today that they would be reminded that your kingdom has come. And in your kingdom, there are no mistakes. In your kingdom, there's safety. In your kingdom, there's security. And that safety and security doesn't come from worldly standards, but it comes from you. For you promise to us that our safety and our security are found not in this life, but in heaven. And so in this life, we live in hope knowing that your words are true. And Father, as we sing this song of close, may the words that come out of our mouths be a reflection of our heart. May they be the disposition of our life as we go from this place today. Continue to work in these few moments and help us to respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.